So this morning, <clears throat> this morning I'm hitting puberty. <laughs> this morning, rather, we are beginning our summer psalm series for 2017. And uh, we're going to have just one excursion from the psalms this summer. And that's going to be next week when Samuel Cassing is preaching on that portion in Mark 10, uh, where the rich young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, I expect it will be a great sermon. Looking forward to it. So expectations are high, Sam. Uh, and also, so this summer is, is nice. We get a little variety. John Dunning's going to be preaching for us a few times. Uh, and, and Elder Tim Durrett's going to preach his first sermon ever uh, in July, which I am really excited about. Uh, one of the things I, I love at, uh, that we've had with our elders, our elders will actually uh, take the time to prepare and to preach a sermon to the congregation they've been called to shepherd. And uh, you don't actually see that a whole lot. So it's one of the things I have loved to see here, though. Travis has done it in the past. And uh, so, but anyway, today we're in Psalm 73, so if you've got your Bible, you know, a little trick, open up to the middle of the Bible, you're in the Psalms usually, unless you've got way too many notes in the back, uh, and in which case you can flip over to Psalm 73, and each summer as we are uh, selecting Psalms to preach, we try to select from a variety of categories, I don't know if you know this, but the Psalms all fit into these different categories, uh, and the Psalm we're looking at today is called a Psalm of Trust, uh, and as we walk through this, I I think many of us are going to relate to this, to the, to the process that the author, uh, the psalmist, goes through, uh, because we want to be in the driver's seat of human history, if we're honest, uh, and we end up very frustrated when we find ourselves buckled into the back seat while God navigates, according to his good purpose, the way the world should go. Um, the author here is, uh, the psalm is ultimately God, but the hand that pens this is a man by the name of Asaph. Asaph is mentioned in Second Chronicles as the chief musician in King Solomon's time. Uh, so he was a guy that dealt a lot with the worship of the Lord. Uh, psalm, uh, there's 28 verses in this psalm, and for that reason, we're going to read them in six smaller sections rather than reading them all up front. I realize that uh, if your short-term memory is like mine, you won't remember verse 28 if we start that way. So, um, And we're going to be looking at this, and we're going to be learning, uh, seeing the psalmist as he learns to trust the Lord to trust God in the midst of a, of a sinful world that we live in. Uh, so let's start, first three verses, Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We'll stop right there for now. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for the Psalms. We ask this morning, would you, would you refocus our view of life this morning so that you come into greater focus, so that you are the central priority of our lives. Lord, give me joy this morning to expound your word to your people, and we ask that, that you make our love for you to grow more and more as we continue down this path of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll tell you right from the start, this first line you see here in Psalm 73, this is the conclusion that Asaph ultimately comes to after much struggle. Remember, he didn't write this as he's going through life. He wrote it as he's reflecting back on life, and so... Uh, we're seeing the conclusion right from the start. I want you to keep that line in mind. He says, 
Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. <clears throat> and you're going to keep that in mind, because we're going to come back to that at the end. But uh, for now, I want you to see a couple of other things as we go through this. First, in, in verses 2 and 3, he, he's ultimately making a confession here. He's saying, I, I almost stumbled, which is to say, I, I almost lost my faith because of what I observed in the world around me. Uh, the analogy here is that of a path. We see that very often in Scripture, similar to uh, you know, just the walking analogy that we see. It, it represents the life that we're actually living. And so then, instead of walking upright, he's saying he almost stumbled, that he almost lived according to what he observed in the world, rather than what he knows to be true of the world and true of God, uh, despite what he sees sometimes in the world. And he's speaking on this in terms both morally and, and theologically. In verse 3, he, he more specifically confesses uh, uh, the sin of envy. He says, uh, you know, rather, you know, because why bother worshiping God or, or being obedient to God if God allows such atrocities to, to continue, not only unpunished, but to even see the wicked succeeding in life, to see them prospering in life. It doesn't seem right to him. Uh, Job asked something similar of his friends after he's had this long conversation in Job 21.7. He says, why do the wicked live? reach old age, and grow mighty in power. And the whole reason he asked that is it seems like such an injustice in the world for that to be the case. And here as he's confessing, he's saying that he, you know, he was envious of others. And he didn't even have Facebook to see what all the others were doing constantly. And, and yet here is this envy. You know, and I, I mentioned Facebook because we have so much more opportunity today to find ourselves in the same situation. Do you ever... Do you ever find yourself secretly on some level feeling that you deserve the life that somebody else has. That you deserve the vacations that they're taking. That you deserve the promotion you see them receiving. The, the ease of life that is theirs should be yours. Don't miss the fact here that, that he's confessing this. He's confessing it as a, a sin, the sin of envy. And, and you know, wherever we find envy in our lives, it would do us wonders to... Uh, to not make excuses for it, but rather to confess it to the Lord. And I love the fact that he goes to the Lord with this. Doesn't pretend he's not envious. He confesses that he is. Um, so verses 4 through 12, the this, this second section, the psalmist is going to give this evidence that he has observed about, about the wicked going unpunished. You know, if he were a lawyer, this would be like exhibit A, B, C, D. He's going to start laying all this out. And so you can follow along with the, the, your Bibles in front of you if you've got it open. Uh, starting in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So you're starting to grasp Asaph's struggle here. You know, in our day, we, we tend to ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? His concern is, is quite the opposite of that. You know, why do good things happen? happen to wicked people, to bad people. I mean, surely you, you, you've looked at the world and asked yourself this question before, right? Why does the, the North Korean tyrant Kim Jong 
Un, continue in good health. And meanwhile, we've got missionaries serving the Lord that are they're suffering with persecution and health issues. Seems like injustice. You know, why does financial prosperity often come to some of the most wicked people we see in our culture? Especially when we reflect on the fact of the Proverbs that we read, uh, you know, tell us that it shouldn't be that way, that it should be coming to the upright, right? Uh, twelve times in this little section right here, twelve times he says the word they are there, and each time he is listing some offense of these wicked people that has gone unpunished. When he calls them fat here, that's an insult to us, right? It's not a fat there. Fat for them was a, a way, a sign of blessing, that you had so much food and didn't have to work that hard was a, a sign of blessing. In verse 6 he says, pride is their necklace. He's saying they, they wear their pride outwardly. It's not even a hidden sin. It's, this, it's just this arrogance that has been absolutely embraced by them. In verse 9, we learn that they even speak against God and go unpunished. In verse 11, I think verse 11 is maybe the most frustrating. Uh, as it, it shows us the wicked are saying this, that God can't possibly know what we do. See, these wicked people believe that they are beyond the, the reach of God. Either because they reject that God existed at all, or they believe that, that God has simply set the world in motion and then he has walked away like some disinterested interested parent of unruly children. And so they continue in their evil ways unpunished. He ends this section then observing that the wicked are always at ease and they keep getting richer. Look at this injustice. And so Asaph really wants to know at this point, how do they get away with it? Why do they get away with it? Maybe you've wondered the same thing, you know, leading to the assumption that, that either God's not really God or he is unjust or maybe God just doesn't care. And what the psalmist is, is sharing with us here, though, if you get down to the heart of it, what he is sharing with us is this, is that he went through this absolute crisis of faith. And then the, uh, his inner condition gets worse, though. Look at uh, verses 13 and 14 and follow along. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You hear that? I mean, you ever been there? It's this, this spiritual bitterness is what he's facing. Why are all the wrong people thriving? It says the, the preacher, you know, maybe, maybe Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7.15 wrote, he said, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And Asaph is seeing a similar thing here. Asaph sees that absolutely no incentive for doing right, for pursuing godliness. See, it's brought him, uh, it hasn't brought him the good life that he kind of expected his good behavior should. You know, it hadn't saved him of the troubles he thought. But what he's finding is that the pragmatism of godly living has absolutely failed him. It has not met the expectations he expected to meet. And really, this is a moment where the psalmist is just laying bare the truth that in his heart, his obedience to God wasn't in love to God. It wasn't to please God. It was in the hope that God would reward him with a successful life. That he might actually earn something from God for his behavior. You know, in a, in a sense, it's a, a godly means to a worldly end is what he was looking for. And I think we've all seen it. You know, maybe at some point in your life, maybe you're one of the few people who, who didn't cheat on the exam in the class and you were totally aware of everyone else doing it. 
and you find yourself getting the, the lowest grade, while those who did cheat are not only getting away with it, but being praised for the results that they got. What a wonderful job you got. And you sit there and you see that. You know, in short here, Asaph feels that it's been a waste of time for him to live godly. What has been the point? What has it gained him? And, and you know, before we judge him too harshly, I, I want to ask yourself, you know, am I, am I comfortable speaking to God in the way that the psalmist does here? Because as much as he's put himself out here for us to see his heart, for us to, to, to really judge him on, on, on that sense of expecting God to give him the easy life for his good behavior, there is an honesty here with the Lord that is just laying bare his true thoughts with God that we would do absolutely well to model. That's one of the great things we see in the Psalms. It's just how open and bare people are with God, and God knows you anyway. So then, verses 15 to 20 here, we see this transition occur, and, and we're going to read it starting in verse 15 all the way through 20. It says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a, a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when, when you rouse yourself, you, you despise them as phantoms. In verse 15 here, he's explaining that had he spoken in that moment of his anger and frustration of God, had, had he raged against God publicly, he would have spread, uh, spread doubts to others, to those younger specifically. And the implication here is that, that he's thankful that he, that he didn't do that, that he didn't speak widely and openly in that moment because he, he would have been wrong. Earlier, he, he confessed, you know, he nearly lost his faith. He confessed the, the vanity of right living. He has confessed the, the envy and bitterness at seeing the, weak, the wicked succeed. And yet something changes here. What changed him? Do you see it here? You know, did, his, did Amazon Prime deliver a self-help book that he ordered? Did he observe the wicked actually get what they deserve? Did God give him control over human history? You know, why, Asaph, why don't you go ahead and be God for a little while? You've been wanting to do this? None of that. You know, the answer is, is really quite mundane. We got blinking going on here? Uh, the answer is absolutely mundane. It's not exciting. He says, I went to the sanctuary of God. That's... That's the big change we see here. I went to the sanctuary of God. Uh, you get that? He goes and he worships. We're talking either the tabernacle or the temple that he's worshiping in. We're not sure exactly. But, you know, it, it's like those artsy movies when he goes there. It's like a, where the camera is focused on, on one character, and then they change the focus on the camera, and, and suddenly uh, someone in the distance comes into to clear focus, and what you were looking at before just becomes that blur, and you lose sight of it. Worshiping God refocuses our lives. I, I've experienced this many times in my life. I've heard others say, share similar stories after coming to worship at, at church, whether here or somewhere else, uh, particularly during difficult times in their life. Uh, something along the lines of, of, wow, I really needed that. I really needed that. I needed to remember that, that God is good. I need to remember that he's real. I, I needed to remember that he loves me. And, and, and don't we all need to remember just those simple joys, those simple truths of the gospel. In verse 18, he is trusting God to do something that he hasn't actually observed God do yet. 
What he's exercising here is a, is a faith. He understands that, that the wicked may seem prosperous, but they are walking on slippery paths, and God will bring about justice. In verse 20, he compares life to a dream. That, you know, at death we are going to, uh, to seemingly wake up from the life we are living. We will we'll seem just like the view of our sleeping dreams today when we awake. You know, you, you might dream at night that you own a Ferrari and you're driving at 120 miles an hour down the road. But when you wake, you learn you don't really own a Ferrari. There's nothing there. It was just a dream. That's, that's what death will be like for the wicked, he's saying here. It's a harsh reality, but, but the truth is, in death, they and everyone else will wake up and find God is indeed their judge. It's like Psalm 92.7 says, though, though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. See, the, the power of worldly rulers has, has very little power over our, our lives as Christians. Um, Tim Keller put this well when he said this. He said, all the world's power and wealth are like a dream, and that they can neither enhance nor ruin a Christian's deepest identity, our happiness, and our inheritance in the Lord. And then verses 21 and 22 here, Asaph is reflecting back on, uh, on really his own crummy, crummy attitude. He's speaking to God. He says this. He writes this. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You ever had that? After a heated argument with someone, a, a fight, uh, you look back and you think about the words you said, your actions, the things you did. And you look back at that with that embarrassment, um, you know, and, and confess it. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I said that. I was, I, that's what he's saying here. He's confessing this to God. The psalmist is saying, I, I acted like a beast, not a man before you, God. He's acknowledging the way that he had responded to all this in, the injustice he's seeing. So let's go ahead and finish the passage, verse 23, and we'll read to the end of the chapter here. He says, Nevertheless... I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. And these are his concluding thoughts, right? He's talking about his own future here. He's talking about his relationship with God, uh, how, how God will guide him on the path of life so that he, he, his feet won't slip. See, the, the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament followers of God, didn't have a real good idea of, of the afterlife, of, of eternal life. And, and the reason they didn't is God hadn't revealed a whole lot to them about it yet, and yet here we see the psalmist has a very clear eternal hope. You know, here God is, is revealing as this sense of foreshadow um, what will later be revealed much more fully. And the psalmist is trusting that, that God will receive him to glory. And all the while here, you know, let, let me ask you this. We, we see the heart of the psalmist here. He goes through this struggle. Where is your heart today? I mean, can you, can you say with the psalmist here in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? I mean, do we desire God over everything else? And I'm not saying this is a guilt thing. I'm saying there is nothing more desirable than God. 
If it's not the case, then you're robbing yourself of the greatest joy in the entire world. The Hebrew word here translated desire is, is to delight in or, or to take pleasure in. And the object of the psalmist's delight here is, is in God himself. It's, it's not in avoiding worldly suffering. It's not in succeeding in worldly success. It's, it's in God alone. And it, it reminds me, you know, that, that powerful statement in John 6, 68. I love this story. I'm sure I've told it many times. But, uh, you know, there's this huge crowd, and they're following Jesus, and they're seeing the miracles, and they're so impressed with everything Jesus is doing. And, and, and then he turns around one day, and he says to them, he says this, this phrase, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, but they don't know that yet. They don't know what he's talking about. And so you can imagine he just seems absolutely crazy. And and so a large portion of the crowd, they turn and they just leave him. This guy's nuts. We're out of here. And they stop following Jesus. And Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and and he asks him, do you want to go away as well? And, And Simon Peter, I love Simon Peter. He answers Jesus and he says this. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You know, where else can we find hope and and satisfaction in this world? And, and, And nowhere. Nowhere. And long before Peter confesses that, the psalmist here is confessing at the heart the, the same truth here. You know, in verse 26, we, we see one of the passages of Scripture here, you know, as he's using this phrase then of, uh, of but God. He transitions from that. God, you're the only place, but he's saying, but God. He's, he's saying, I'm weak, I am exhausted, I am physically and emotionally spent. I know you've all been there. And he comes back to you, he says, but God is the strength, literally the rock. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's not saying God is a rock. He's saying God is the rock, the only rock that cannot be moved, the only absolutely steady foundation to be on. I, uh, I'll share with you. I, I had some, some medical anxieties recently. I had some pain here, and I, I went into the doctor, and he said, 70% chance that's a hernia. Well, my head immediately started thinking, so what's the other 30% chance? And I foolishly Googled what that other 30% might be, and the results were quite predictable. Uh, about a hundred variations on cancer and all sorts of things that will certainly kill you. And I, I, I'm still uncertain what the, what the pain is at this point, but the expectation uh, as we've dug into this further is that it's nothing serious for now. Um, however, if I'm honest, it absolutely rocked my world. And I am thankful for this fear because, you know, ignorance is, is bliss for sure, but, but knowledge of our own morality is sanctifying, truly sanctifying. And at the time, uh, I, I read this quote that just absolutely stuck with me. It was written by a Frenchman named Leon Blois. I don't know much about him except for he's been dead 100 years now. And, and he wrote this. He wrote this. This is what stuck with me. He said, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only true tragedy in life is that you not become a saint. I understand him to mean the word saint there in the biblical sense of the word saint, of simply being a Christian, of looking to Jesus Christ with faith. And I, and I read this while I was walking down the linear trail, because uh, you can do that with a Kindle, so uh, point for Kindle over paper books. But, uh, and it was, it was great. I, I found the quote so great because it, it brought life into this, this clear perspective. Um, 
His point is that the only way that, that we can mess up this life which we have been given, you know, the only way that we can, we can fail life 101 is to not put our trust in Jesus. And do you hear the wider implications of something like that? You know, all the mistakes we make, all the sins we've committed, they, they, might, they might make aspects of your life very difficult. They may create hardships of all sorts. They, they may mess your life up in a lot of ways, right? But, but if God gives us faith to believe the gospel, to re- repent of our sin, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be adopted as a child into God's family, if God does that for us, you know, if God has indwelled us with his Holy Spirit, then those mistakes, those sins, they don't render life a failure. In short, your, your life can have real meaning in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, only in Jesus Christ. And so then in verse 25, he's teaching us that, that God will deal justly with the wicked in death. They will not escape punishment. You know, as, as God unfolds redemptive history in the New Testament, we learn that even, even those who believe ourselves to be, to be good people, we're really sinful people. And we have reason to be thankful for the sake of, uh, you know, that for the sake of true justice and because no evil gets overlooked, that, that Jesus received the punishment for those who have union with him through faith. And, and finally here in, in verse 28, and it is the psalmist speaking and he's sharing that he is near to God. What a ways to come from being angry and distant from God to now being near to God, that God is his refuge and that, that he's going to speak about the wonderful deeds of God. Um, the psalmist trusts the Lord of the universe to rule what is rightly his and to do so with, with justice. And, and we too must trust the Lord with, with the details of this life that we're living. You know, wherever, wherever we see God's grace then, wherever we see his justice, wherever we see his, his mercy, we ought to be pointing this out to people. We ought to be speaking of God's goodness to speak it so our, our children can hear it, so our friends can hear it, so anyone around us who we might be interacting with can hear about the goodness of God. Let's bring this all together and we'll, we'll finish up here. See, the, the problem of, of why the wicked prosper and why the good suffer has been a point of frustration for, for humans constantly wrestling with this ever since Adam and Eve left the garden. You know, and, and so long as we are expecting justice in this life alone, in our terms, according to our views, we are going to continue to be frustrated. But, but God has made known to us that there is more living beyond our dying, and God will render justice accordingly. One thing we know is God, is God is a God of justice. In other words, present realities are not final or ultimate realities. Also, God is God. You and me, we're not God. I know a three-year-old can understand that, but sometimes we, we don't live that out. I know uh, last week during the the tornado warnings. I am a complete weenie when it comes to tornadoes. I will, I run. Uh, but last Thursday, we were in the McCain Auditorium. Sadie was, uh, had a dance rehearsal, and the sirens went off, and they sent us down into the basements, which was great because we're in a basement. Um, and, and when I get down there, I find my phone has no data. I can get texts, but no data at all. And, uh, and, and so I, I couldn't see where the storm was. I couldn't see this information. I wouldn't be able to get it. In fact, the only updates we were getting was from Sam Casting, and most of those were pictures of cats getting stuck in boxes and stuff like that. Not real helpful in the tornado. Um, need more data. Uh, but the truth is, I, I find myself as just a modern human absolutely feeling entitled that I deserve all the information available. 
you know, and, and the truth is, this is the way we are with God sometimes. I, I need all the information so I can see if you're doing things the way I think you should. God doesn't give us all the information. But we, we know what the psalmist here knows. It's, it's what he writes there in the first line of the psalm, right? Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And Psalm 24.4 defines the pure of heart as, as those who do not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Someone who's not worshiping idols, you know, the, the pure in heart are all those who have found a refuge in the one true God, our triune God. And the, and the psalmist is saying here, you know, the, the Lord is, is good. The Lord is good to me, and I can trust that. You know, the realization he comes around to is, I don't have to be in control. I'm not in control, but I'm trusting you, God, that you are in control. And that's all the information we need. And, and so Christians, we, we may take refuge in the Lord. We may trust the Lord. We may delight in the Lord always because he is God and because he is good. If you ever doubt that, you look to the cross. If you ever doubt the goodness of God, you look to the cross where he has absolutely redeemed you in ways that we do not deserve. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we see the evil succeed. We see the kind-hearted suffer. We see false religions spread and Christianity struggle. We see wealth obtained by the greedy and selfish. And like the psalmist, we wonder, why? Lord, teach us to trust you. Teach us to trust you about justice and to not be backseat drivers for world history. Make us to see that justice is fulfilled in the cross. So that we who are also selfish and greedy and sinful can stand before you, counted righteous and loved as your children. And God, may you be our refuge. May we speak everywhere we go of your great works and your great love and your greatness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.